Greetings, rabble-rousers. My name is Jessa McLean. Welcome to Blueprints for Disruption, a weekly discussion dedicated to amplifying activism across Turtle Island. Together, we will examine tactics, explore motivations, and celebrate successes in disrupting the status quo. This podcast is a proud part of New Left Media. So I don't think at this point there's any disputing that public health care in Canada is under attack, and really it has been for years. And even though we constantly seem to pride ourselves in the idea that healthcare is some sort of inherent Canadian value, whatever, whatever that is, we've not done a whole lot to defend it, to make sure that it's not just another one of these public services sold off to the highest bidder. With our resources, Canada could have one of the most robust healthcare systems in the world. We've chosen not to. We've chosen defunding and delisting services instead of expansion and true universality. Heck, even the NDP is happy to introduce means testing into healthcare. Neoliberalism of all colors has eroded our healthcare for decades now, and this attack on one of the most fundamental public services we have has largely gone unnoticed by the public. Until now. Open talk of privatization seeing ERs close, and the massive nursing shortage has alerted the masses, I think. And as oblivious as many have seemed to be, there has consistently been a group of people fighting back, perhaps unbeknownst to us. Health coalitions. Health coalitions have been on the front line pushing back since the inception of our public health care. And there's never been a more critical time honestly, to amplify this work. So this episode will shed light on what they are, what their mission is, and I think it reveals what's standing in their way. Let's hear from my next guest who knows all about these coalitions and just what they need to do to save public health care. All right. Thank you for joining me. Peter, please introduce yourself to the audience. And greetings, Jessa, and your listeners on New Left Radio. My name is Peter Bergmanis. I am the co-chair and founding member of the London Health Coalition in London, Ontario. Uh, we're part of a broader band of uh, like-minded people under the coalition in Ontario known as the Ontario Health Coalition, which itself is then uh, under the broader pan-Canadian group known as the Canadian Health Coalition. Uh, many of us uh, come from all walks of life. In Ontario, we have some uh, over 700,000 members, largely all volunteers. And we all have this passion for the defense of Tommy Douglas's vision of a universal, accessible public health care system. And more than that, we not only want to defend it, we wish to see it expand and grow. So 7,000 members, is was that just for the London Health Coalition? No, sorry, that was 700,000 members in Ontario. The London Health Coalition has approximately uh, 200 active members, but uh, guarantee you there's about 10 times more than that that are sympathizers. And ready to activate when needed. Exactly. And it's nonpartisan. I have to emphasize that which is part even though you drop <laughs> even though we dropped tommy douglas's name already we are we are nonpartisan, but we are definitely not you're definitely not non-political 
Oh, right? We're highly political because healthcare is highly political. As much as some of the commentators like to say, take politics out of it, we wouldn't have a public healthcare system without politics. And Medicare was brought in by all political parties. So that's why we can easily say we are nonpartisan because it was introduced by all political parties. And, um, you know, any threat, irregardless, left or right to it, we will be very vocal critics of whatever policies threaten it. Now, I would have thought that the health coalition was made up of healthcare workers, but you were saying these are volunteers from all walks of life. Is it predominantly healthcare workers? Who are you mostly speaking for? Uh, healthcare workers generally, and I'm personally come from a healthcare field. I uh, was in healthcare myself for about 40 years. Uh, about 30 of those years I spent in the operating theater at uh, St. Joseph's Healthcare in London. But uh, apart from myself, there are certainly nurses, there are certainly physicians, other clinicians, techs of all manner from uh, diagnostics to pharmacies, teachers, social workers, farmers, you name it. They're all people who have the one common element, which is their unabiding and unabashed love for universal public health care. How, how do you guys keep, how do you sustain your work? So I guess that's my roundabout way of asking who funds the work. Well, it's largely, um, we'll, we'll talk on two different levels here. It's largely uh, funded by individual donations. That's the model that uh, we rely on heavily. There is a working staff uh, based in Toronto, which is where the director of the Ontario Health Coalition resides. And they do get a salary. Um, organized labor is very instrumental in ensuring that there is an ongoing flow of funding to make sure that uh, there's stability in our source of funding. But it is not our sole source nor the majority source. It is a good structural uh, advantage to have uh, labor, and labor has been always involved in the services that are public good. And uh, so they're an ally. And uh, so the Ontario Federation of Labor here in Ontario is, is an ally, and it also helps support uh, local, local funding comes from volunteer donations from various groups, including labor councils, but they're like usually one-time things and uh, are much appreciated in the ongoing work that we do. Now, can I imagine, are these coalitions everywhere? You know, um, I know that you, there is the, the larger national coalition, but is this very common for all regions to have, even if it's, you know, small and mighty force? Well, really, it uh, you have to remember it was uh, founded, literally, the Canadian Health Coalition was founded uh, in the early 80s by Tommy Douglas. Because at that time, at a convention, he announced that, you know, we have to be alert to the threats to the public system that his vision had created and that had been brought into Canadian law and life throughout the 70s. And even then, the threats were there. 
And uh, so he said, we need to establish coalitions throughout the country. And very much so, uh, we have grown and expanded over the last 40 years to include every jurisdiction. Um, now, I'm not as familiar with the territorial governments, and uh, but I'm almost certain that like in larger provinces like ours, you would have many, many coalitions in many communities. And the London one's been around over 20 years now. So, uh, and as I say, we probably started uh, with, uh, in Ontario, with less than half a million members. Now we're almost up to a million. So we know we've been expanding in communities because the word does get out. I'm, you know, the timing of it, uh, it's not ironic that Tommy Douglas would have foreseen the need for these coalitions and then to see them expand uh, alongside the expansion of, of austerity, right? So I imagine the busier you get, the more you grow, because I think it's it's more apparent to Canadians that there's a need to defend it. Uh, you know, before we went on air, I want to go back to that comment you made that perhaps some of us are a little naive in the security of our public health care. You agree with that? You know, is is that part of your role, just making sure folks know that there's a fight to be fought? Absolutely. is. It's the reason for our existence is to ensure that uh, there is a healthy public debate around all healthcare issues that take place. And Tommy Douglas foresaw that, that many years ago, like obviously bringing it in and giving it birth in Canada was a long struggle. It didn't happen overnight. And he knew that the very same forces that we thought we had staked down were gonna again attempt again and again. And like two generations later, here we are in uh, Ontario with an broadly unpopular government that is actually threatening the very existence of universal public health care and uh, portraying their outdated private ideas as if they're a new innovation when they're so dinosaur that that's why Canadians got rid of private delivery of health care over 60 years ago. But money is money. And, um, you know, here we are, we're fighting like hell to your point that we're expanding in relation to the fact that the threat is expanding as well. It shows that we're connecting with Canadians who have never, ever thought that the private system was ever better than ours. And that small minority that does usually has a financial interest. I hear that. I think, you know, when we're hearing horror stories of private health care, we're always turned south as though there aren't stories like that already to be told here in Ontario. Peter, give us an idea. Like, I, it seems like this idea that we're fighting against the slow privatization, but I don't think, you know, people are actually feeling the, the threat. And that's probably maybe they haven't had to pay for services just yet. What is the current status of private clinics in Ontario? How, how prevalent is 
private health care already here in the province. And you can touch on Canada as well, because we do have listeners um, coast to coast. Well, uh, my most familiar area is here in Ontario, but Certainly, uh, I think uh, your listeners would be familiar with that. Um, almost every jurisdiction, especially the ones with conservative governments, even though I say we're nonpartisan, it seems to be conservative governments of the day that are, are the most uh, aggressive in pushing the agenda for a private system or their involvement in public health care, at least. And uh, so, yeah, there was uh, Quebec, there was the Chuli case uh, a decade ago, which, you know, uh, threatened that it's uh, unconstitutional to uh, not allow a patient to get access to necessary care in a timely manner if they can afford to circumvent the public queue. Uh, Dr. Brian Day, now out of British Columbia, has got a court challenge that it uh, Bases on the same constitutional argument that you should be able to pay privately to access necessary care if you can afford to do that. Uh, and so, and it goes on and on. We have independent health facilities that uh, were ironically brought in by a, uh, the Deb Matthews and the uh, Wynn administration here in Ontario in uh, just about five, six years ago. And uh, it was a it was a means of actually attempting to circumvent uh, the ban on private hospitals that had been established in Ontario since 1973. So uh, all of these things have culminated now, and uh, they're they're seemingly entrenched, although I believe with a strong firm public push back that we can uh, reverse the way the tide is shifted right now. Now, the dilemma with these private facilities is that uh, they do nothing to solve the issues that are, are problems at hand. Number one, enormous collapse of staffing throughout all Canadian jurisdictions and in Ontario, especially acute. We already do not service our public service infrastructure any better than any other Canadian jurisdiction. So imagine the largest province, largest population, and per capita, we do not fund hospitals any better than any other jurisdiction, not a territory, not a province the size of PEI. We are the bottom. And now we're also pretending like somehow we're going to miraculously bring in another tier of healthcare providers to relieve the pressures on the public system through a private provider in a private surgery without really advocating the fact that or admitting the fact that these are the very same surgeons that work in our public hospitals but can't get OR time because there's no funding for the public side. We have it apparently a plenty for the private side. That's our public dollars. We're paying privately when we could have been funneling all these resources into the public system and there wouldn't be any profit taking. We just go 24 7. And there are healthcare workers willing to do that, but they're not getting the support from our government. 
I mean, that's often the myth that's sold with a lot of privatization, right? Is that um, it's a cost saving measure, but you know, um, we, there's the private agencies that we end up paying even more to, or you know, the fact that we've lost control over some of these public services that is costly. COVID, you know, um, defunding our healthcare that became actually more costly, uh, not just in lives, but in actual dollar amounts. So, and Peter, is it not right though that like for 30 years, really, we have seen this, if we're called the blueprints of disruption, this, the blueprint of neoliberalism, where consistent defunding for the purpose of eventual privatization, right? Gradual privatization. And we're, you know, advocates for education are saying a very similar uh, story where you make it just so bad that you can't but help contemplate paying for a private education or private surgery. My husband right now has no hope of getting the surgery he needs to make his back better. There's all sorts of wait lists and different criteria. And I thought for myself, I felt pity for us because I thought if I were rich, I could help him. Right. So I, our minds do go there. Right. But it's because the public system has failed us, not because it doesn't work, though. Right. It's not because it doesn't work that the idea of public health care, free health care paid by tax dollars doesn't work. It's it's they have destroyed it for this purpose. That must have been you've been you've been doing this a long time. That must be hard for you to watch. I literally have uh, been there from the days of the Romano Commission in the early 2000s. And at that time, there was the considerable threat because the federal government was like in a headlong flight from supporting the transfers necessary to the provinces to fund the universal health care system. And uh, Romano's commission to this day remains the most uh, inclusive, comprehensive review of what Canadians wanted out of their healthcare system. And it was fundamentally a values based report. And he said so. It, it's not a partisan issue to say that all Canadians believe in the value of equity and accessibility for someone who needs health care. And it's not based on whether they can pay to get ahead of the line. So it's this is the fundamental principle that drives all of us when we're talking about defending Medicare. Uh, it's totally, you know, outrageous that we can still end up with these failed leaders who are not representative of the public will in positions of government decision-making. And uh, that's not that the system has failed us, it's the leaders that have failed us. Give the resources to the public healthcare system and it is the same wonder that we thought it would be 60 years ago. But of course, now, you know, you said it, the playbook is break it, pretend that you have to bring in the private sector to help mend it, 
And then unfortunately, you know, you've lost your public system eventually because the resources will all flow into the coffers of the private sector. So we know this this impact won't be on the people making these decisions, right? We're generally governed by very wealthy people. Not only are they paid very well, but they usually get where they are because they're wealthy. That's another episode altogether, I suppose. But this is going to impact already marginalized people, right? Typically, that means people in poverty or struggling, you know, and that can be for a variety of reasons, right? What, as we go down this path, I can't help but think right now, the big discussion is on the long-term care homes and what the cost-cutting measures mean for disabled folks that require these the long-term care and how I do see people making noise, uh, right? I, I, I know that there's advocates, but they're the same advocates that are always kind of doing this, this defending of the, the health care. Um, I'm astonished that we are not seeing more action on this right now, especially here in Ontario. Let's let's break this down to two parter. One, how else can you tell us like this is going to really impact marginalized people? You know, in in a rea- in a reality sense, not just like they'll have lesser health care, but you know, let's kind of dive into that. And then I I'd like to explore also what this impact would be on the healthcare system itself, right? So oh yeah, well. Our, our long-term care story is uh, is definitely a uh, one with hills and valleys. And um, to put it in a historical context, uh, certainly in the Ontario situation, uh, before the Paris government, the conservative government of the 90s to early 2000s, uh, long-term care was predominantly a non-profit sector um and there were probably more municipal homes which are regarded definitely as uh, amongst the best when it comes to plowing resources and human resources back into the care provided uh certainly we discovered that during the pandemic uh they ended up being the shining stars in what was an overly gloomy look when some of these private providers had to have the military occupy them just so that people could be saved. Uh, that alone, you know, should have been a trigger for Canadians to go listen. And and most Canadians did, by the way. I mean, it's the Trudeau government that failed us there. They could have said, you know, this is the time to now make a national long-term care act that's fully funded publicly and drive these for profits out because they know it's as good as we do that uh, memory is short right yeah. so you're saying like they should have capitalized on that clear understanding we had when we were in the first few waves of covid where folks were dying in larger numbers in private facilities like peter's talking about and yeah we all tweeted about it but no no legislation was passed to kind of prevent this from happening province to province or prevent it from happening Exactly. They threw it back into the private accreditation system. And honestly, we all know every facility in the country is accredited, but it didn't save one life. 
So it's just nonsense to, you know, I think the feds put about three billion commitment into it. And that's a drop in the bucket, especially when they're quite happy to put in 24 billion into a pipeline. So we know, you know, where's their priorities here? But that's a digression uh, from uh, the history here. And, um, you know, to the unending shame of the Conservative Party of the 1990s, it's Mike Harris literally slashed and burned 10,000 hospital beds, chronic care beds, out of the system and opened the doors to the for-profit providers in long-term care, because this is what his whole strategy was, was to download patients who should have been in a chronic care hospital bed into a long-term care bed, which is only a third of the cost of a hospital bed. And of course, lower graduations of staffing. And this is now back in the 90s and early 2000s, remember? So we, we still had relatively good numbers of healthcare workers in the system. Um, but as it turns out later, we also learned that, you know, Mr. Harris invested heavily into being on boards of directors of for-profit long-term care facilities and his family. And it's an on. He's making good money off of that. Yeah. <clears throat> oh yeah. Like if, if this had been a scandal in some other jurisdiction, you, like how is this guy getting the order of Ontario? Because we keep electing capitalists, right? So like people think, oh, they're the premier. They're there to take care of us. They guide us. Like, you know, like folks are really just still very naive. But in reality, they are capitalists just stepping out of their role for a moment to reshape our public sectors. Then they go right back into it um, wealthier than than when they started. So folks might know Mike Harris' story and get really enraged because it is. It's enraging. So that is the premier of Ontario who now you know, makes millions of dollars off of the misery of folks in long, horribly run long-term care homes. But that is really the norm, Peter, right? Like healthcare, uh, we can expect all cabinet members essentially from conservative governments to get really cushy private sector jobs when they come out. None of this has ever been done in our best interest. And you did mention conservative governments, but I, I am glad that you pointed out that Liberal governments, too, here in Ontario and beyond um, have steadily defunded the system. And, and, and you know, Trudeau, you say, has done nothing to repair it. How bad does it have to get? Like, what do you imagine? We have four years of Ford here. We're in year one of this next, his, his second term that we, you know, let's not even go how he got that second term. But... If he's already doing this in year one, what can we expect after four years? What's your worst case scenario after four years if we don't fight back hard enough? Well, I am. Uh, you have to reflect on what's already happened uh, since the election campaigns. Like the Ontario Health Coalition was about the only organization uh, that put healthcare on the uh policy map during the election, which is kind of 
outrageous considering that during a pandemic yeah it's kind of like how did we have to force traditional media outlets to actually even ask the questions we had just gone through four years of a government that refused to even release its ministerial mandate letters which is unheard of in its own right and what did the media come up with? And, and it's certainly not what New Left has done, but it certainly is what traditional outlets are. They said there was no campaign issues. That is ridiculous. They became scribes of the Ontario Premier's office and said nothing because he wouldn't answer questions. Wouldn't that just say right away? Bloody well, ask them the questions. They have to be asked. The mandate letters that Peter's talking about that are secret, these are instructions from the premier to his cabinet ministers on his vision, what he expects them to do uh, in their jobs. And so we don't know what he has told the health minister, the education minister, what his plans are. Um, so that's, you know... I just wanted to add a little bit of uh, back information for folks who may not understand just how egregious that is for us to not have those mandate letters and for the press not to <laughs> demand them. Yeah, and, and I have to tell you, this is the most undemocratic provincial government in my lifetime, and if not in all modern history, that the fact that uh, they are ramming through a bill today, like literally this week coming, Bill 7 is what it's called here in Ontario, and it's going to obliterate the right of consent for a hospital patient who is waiting for a long-term care bed, or otherwise, quite frankly, and obliterate that so that they can free up beds for whatever surge in the next wave of COVID may be or trauma, or anything else, which actually doesn't do anything for the staffing at all. It just means we're going to push you into a private facility, which might be one of the worst providers of care in the entire province, so that we free up a bed for someone younger. It's ageism here too, right? It's, it's, it's all of these factors coming to play, which happened throughout the pandemic. So you're old, you're expendable, we can just shove you aside. This government is not having debate on it. It's not having public consultations on it. That is what was handed to this government at that despicable election result where 18% in Ontario dictated 100% of government policy. So we've got a lot of problems here. And that's part of that issue around you know the long-term care private providers with their tentacles right through the Conservative Party of Ontario and right through the Premier's office. We have a revolving door for the Minister of Health, literally, like we've got this fourth one. Uh, we've had four years now of this dictatorial rule, probably is what we're faced with. And that's to your point, just what my you know, fears are of what we're gonna get in the next four years when they can ram through a bill without even discussing it with the opposition party. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And uh, they're doing it at the behest of all of their cronies in 
the private sector. I love how that's why I absolutely hate the tactic of uh, groups demanding the resignation of a minister, because that is doing absolutely nothing. They all have the same mandate. It does not change with the personality. You're only allowing a facelift to occur to the public to get them to start back over where you then have to discredit another minister. It should be the ideology behind what they're doing that folks should be challenging. And I think that's one of the downfalls of the opposition, frankly. Um, I wouldn't even bother naming the minister. It doesn't really matter. It's all coming from capital. You could say Ford, but I, you, we really do need to help people understand that it isn't Ford is a bad person. He is. Believe me, that what he's doing is awful and it will kill people. But Ford represents an ideology that won't be replaced even if he were to leave today. Even if you were to vote him out today and put the liberals back in, there's no guarantee. I want to go back to the impact, though. Um, you did mention ageism. I, I just want to to make a note that it's mostly ableism, though, because you don't go to a long-term care home because you are old. It's because you have disabilities that require attention or accommodations. And so what we're seeing is disabled folks are going to be on the front line of these cuts, right? They're now being viewed as just simply taking up beds um, as though they don't deserve one of, of their own, right? That The care for disabled folks is, is just going to deteriorate because we've seen such a disdain for uh, disabled people across Ontario, um, you know, with ODSP uh, is is just a, a great example. The the services that we give, uh, sorry, the social assistance that we give disabled people is is legislated poverty, and so you know, I it, that troubles me because I don't think the public is acting with the urgency that they need. Perhaps maybe they're waiting until four, you know, oh, that's four years, you know, so I see the political parties, they're all playing the election game, right? So they'll establish a new leader of all, all of our Ontario parties and get in position to beat him in four years. But let's talk about the generational impact that is will already be felt from the cuts, right? Because we still feel Harris's cuts, right? You can still point to things and problems in the system from Harris's cuts that were never fixed um, and that might can't be fixed. I, I don't really know. But does that add to the urgency to not wait four years to really take up arms, um, metaphorically speaking? Yeah, exactly. As I was pointing out there, like this government who really has no mandate to tamper with the healthcare system is already making an all out assault on long term care patients and residents uh, in the you know height of summer. And hoping that, you know, the population will not have their minds on any of this until it's too late. And, you know, I, I, it's shameful that traditional media outlets aren't even raising more than just a sidebar about, yeah, and people won't have informed consent. Uh, for far less, and we, you know, we could drift into that crazy world of the convoy and occupiers of uh, Windsor and uh, Ottawa. But I mean, they they got up in arms over public health measures. A mask, right? Being forced to wear a mask. Yeah, like public health measures that help everyone. Masks, vaccines. And yet I see not one of those convidiots out there now demonstrating about the right to consent which is fundamental to their very argument. 
but that explains where they're coming from, really, isn't it? And, you know, they're really the forces of conservatism. They're not the forces of the liberty they talk about. And so, yeah, it's um, it's going to happen this fast in his second term. And again, you know, we don't even have the mandate letters from the first term. I can well imagine what the term of office is going to look like this time around. So organizations like the Ontario Health Coalition are gaining traction because we're actually speaking out and being very public wherever we can. New Left, I thank you so much for getting my message in there. Uh, but there's so many more speakers that I know you can talk to about this. Uh, it's It's just face-to-face -face seems to be what's actually working. And in a pandemic, as all activists know, it was almost impossible to have those face-to-face -face meetings, except unless electronically through Zoom or something. Uh, and yet here we were in Ontario, London, Ontario. We doubled our membership at our London Health Coalition simply through something as simple as the technology of Zoom. It does get the word out. We can't be as visible as we'd like to. But let's face it, if a bunch of whack jobs and a convoy can bring this country to its knees, I think we, as the vast majority, can really do something here. Well, and if we go back to that comment you made where essentially it, it is a value of most folks, even if they are convidiots, which I, I do love that term. I had not heard that one before. They should also believe in public health care, right? They're the first people to talk about Canadian values. You've seen the trucks and the flags, right? So if that's not a quintessential, uh, you know, I'm using air quotes, people, Canadian values, because there are, in my opinion, no Canadian values. We all hold different values. But I think generally most folks believe if you're sick, you deserve care. Um, and Yeah, but we, we know that that's not where they're coming from. No, but and, they should be know, allies the in this. No, like it should be every Canadian yeah, well, taking to the streets to demand we had them. You know what? They had a simultaneous protest with us over in uh, the beginning of this year, January, and uh, they did not intermingle with us. Not that we wanted them to, because we were celebrating healthcare workers and they're unmasked and they're waving their flags. And you know, it there was no sense of solidarity with them at all, because they weren't listening to our message. They just wanted to talk about freedom freedom of what their selfish individual ways because that's all they want and i'm you know the crossover with the influence they have in the police departments they're touched they were like treated with kid gloves and you and i both know and we've been protesting prior to covid there was an unbelievable police presence around any government institutions and we're very peaceful. And yet these people were reckless. So, you know, there's there's all kinds of layers. And we know that they're funded by the extreme right and also the conservative elements, the capitalist classes that are the really super rich, the Koch brothers in the U.S. It's like it all coalesces with that kind of nonsense, that libertarianism, that only your individual freedom matters and the rest of society doesn't count. Of course, that falls apart pretty fast when there's no one else looking after anyone. So it's 
Yeah, yeah, it it all goes through this. And Mr. Ford is a manifestation of that. And you've got it right. We can remove one and place the next widget in there. They're the same ideologues. And that's why the movement of the Health Coalition and all other social justice groups must work together. Indigenous peoples have been front and center in our work as well. They've been obviously in a second tier for their entire existence when it comes to healthcare provision. Uh, the marginalized communities of the homeless, the uh, disabled, you name it. Ableism is a very good point you made. Um, it's just unfathomable that a society that values so strongly equity and accessibility would actually allow this. And I think we all know the vast majority don't believe it, but we don't have a voice. So this is a real problem. Let's talk about, you know, getting that voice and what what you guys are doing and what folks can do. So, you know, you mentioned healthcare workers standing alongside healthcare workers. Just for a second, how are they doing? Well, uh, on the front lines right now, it's uh, it, it's no fabrication to say that what you've been hearing is uh, the imminent collapse of our, our public system. Uh, I have nursing staff who talk to me uh, regularly about, you know, how are we going to make it another day? Uh, in Ontario, and I do know also in some other provinces, we are forced with uh, closures of emergency departments uh, because there are not sufficient trained nursing staff to man them. Uh, I'll tell you this, my entire 40 years in healthcare, that's never happened. Our government is in flat out denial to say that, oh yeah, this might happen now and again. When, when in our history did that ever happen before? Never, under this guy's juris, you know, leadership or lack thereof, it's happening on a regular basis. There's a small town north of London, St. Mary's. They had their eMERGE department closed. It's only one hospital in the whole community. How do you close an eMERGE department? And then you have to go how many more kilometers to the next one that might be open? It's, it's outrageous. And yet we have millions to give to private facilities that do nothing for our public welfare other than pad the bottom line for investors. Our priorities with these people are way off. So this must have like, you know, we're hearing horror stories from nurses and you say, you know, they, they wonder how to go another day. Obviously, a lot are fleeing from the profession. What can health coalitions do to support these workers? You know, other than get Bill 124 repealed, uh, <laughs> you know, how how can we help them today? Like what what are you folks been doing? You know, you hear standing alongside them outside during rallies, but what else? Well, we certainly uh, have kept our communications with them um, wide open. Uh, as myself, I'm a healthcare worker. It's been my honor to be part of this organization. And uh, it's uh, so with the healthcare workers, it predominantly it's a female workforce. It is a uh, unionized, heavily unionized. So that's a very good bonus because they already have an organized voice when it comes to their professional demands. So we more are on the political side of saying, you know, 
to the government because we can act, act advocate to any government in power through our lens of being nonpartisan that, listen, this makes sense not to have this kind of legislation. Problem in Ontario is, and, and possibly in the other jurisdictions here, that uh, you have governments that don't listen. And if you're locked out of the system, uh, you know, they're, they're, they definitely have made their choices. And for us, we're going to probably have to take our tactics up a notch. And now the public health measures have virtually been obliterated. Uh, we'll be able to be more present in the public eye. Uh, so getting back to your point about the healthcare workers, literally we have to speak for them in most instances. There's too few of them. They cannot join on a picket line. They can't be going public about what they know without threat of losing their work and livelihood. Um, so ours is the one that we speak for them as much as we possibly can. Um, so they, the ones that are retired have joined us in droves and we're always strategizing together. And the ones that cannot still feed us the information of what's really happening on the inside. And we're the blowhorn that gets it out into the public. So, um, you know, it's probably more important to know that we're, we're, Allying ourselves with so many other social justice groups too. Uh, for instance, uh, the labor, or should I say, labor councils, as well as the uh, uh, legal aid associations that are out there. I certainly know a friend of yours and mine that we both worked in legal aid together, and how we've come full circle here is uh, pretty well a testament that social justice activists pretty well have the same agendas and thoughts. And uh, so, you know, as well as Fair Vote Canada, I'll give them a plug too, because uh, we all see the progressive voice is being diminished with a very poor electoral system. And there's no way there should be a government in Queen's Park like Mr. Ford's with only 18% of the vote. That's nonsense. So... One of my next questions you've already answered because I want to know, you know, you seem structured to give information and a voice um, speaking to politicians, right? So they make the right decisions. My question was, you know, do they listen? The answer was no. Not you right talk now. Not right now. Because <laughs> that Fair is enough. the nature of an autocratic uh, regime, right? Yeah. And, you know, don't feel uh, personally slighted. Right. We know he's not listening to really any female led sector or uh, many labor groups, uh, except their friends. Maybe Layuna has actually even called for Bill 124 to be repealed. I saw that this morning. So, you know, my advice to Layuna is maybe don't back the Ford government in the next election and you won't have to issue those statements, friends. But, you know, I was glad yeah. to see that. But let's go. So, they're not listening to you. You need the public to listen to you. Labor's on your side, which is let's let's do this. How are you going to be heard above all this noise? You know, how are you folks going to get people who are tired and exhausted? A lot of us are out of work to get up and do something about this. You know, what's what's your job right now, Peter? 
Yeah. Well, certainly getting the information out, the clear facts of what is actually happening. Like, I don't even know how many Ontarians know that this uh, Bill 7 is literally steamrolling resident and patient rights uh, until they find themselves in the situation, of course. Uh, so it's this nitty gritty kind of uh, deep dive into the uh, politics at Queen's Park that we're very good at. Uh, our biggest challenge, and, and we, we uh, you know, we're thrilled that New Left exists. It didn't prior to the pandemic, and that kind of helps when you have more media uh, options. And social media, you know, it is kind of a hit and miss affair. Uh, certainly, um, a lot of people just tend to listen to what they want to listen to instead of open their eyes to other things. Uh, but social media also has provided us with the new left. It's also given us other alternative sources of information. I, I feel very disheartened by the concentration of traditional media right now uh, because it is, as you've noted, Jessa, that it's ideology that's driving everything. And more billionaires who own all the means of conversation don't want to lean into anything that's too controversial against their own class's interests. So, you know, here it's a bit of a Marxist lens, I suppose, I'm looking through right now. And uh, I don't know how much I can give to the media as it's traditionally been to be able to be our sounding board. I certainly give a lot of credit to you and your audience, though. And uh, all of our expansion has really come with the personal conversations we've been having. And that's literally like what happened for Obama's first term of office. It was through that personal touch, the face-to-face, -face, that they reached out to the vast majority. Because we already know we are the vast majority. We just are downbeat. That's all. So do you, are you folks going to go door to door when you say face to face? That's the second time you've mentioned it. So is that how you're going to get to people beyond going, you know, on podcasts and social media? And that's what you have traditionally done during the uh, prior run up to the election here in Ontario, kind of limited as to how much third party campaigning can do. And I suspect it's somewhat similar in other jurisdictions, too. Um, we were like the ones that were putting out the billboards and the signs and the lawn signs with the political messaging of don't privatize our health care. And it, otherwise, uh, again, what, what were we getting the drumbeat about from traditional media? Oh, the polls say that he's off to make a another majority government, you know, without any real substance to that. Like, why? Where did these polls come from? Who the hell answers that? <laughs> I've like, never no had them call phone. me ever. But I have, and I, I don't answer these phone calls because who does? You're bothered by them, right? But it's someone with an agenda, and it's someone who actually wants to talk. And uh, boy, it sure looks like it's only 18% of the population for sure. And, uh, and yet that was newsworthy enough to always be messaged and not newsworthy enough to message that most residents in private care died in Ontario. That, that never got re-messaged enough. And, and we're still living with those bloody consequences. And, uh, you know, so I, I don't know what to make of the traditional formats, but 
back to your point about uh, how we've done it. It's been a, the old fashioned door knocking. We did that canvassing as if we're running an election campaign, but it was for the hearts and minds of Ontarians so that they were aware. And, and believe it to this day, we have our signage up throughout this province right to this day, because we know this war is not over. And uh, the battle may have been lost, but we are going to be fighting this guy right through to the end of his second term. Well, this is a class war. So I'm glad to hear like, yeah, this this work definitely isn't going to revolve around these four year election cycles because we, we clearly have no no time for that. I mean. It's it must be exhausting, though, to just have to kind of put that message out there over and over again and you know, wish for it to gain traction and for people to get upset enough. I think because in reality, we know it has to get worse sometimes before folks will fight to make it better. How can you, you know, without sharing any secrets, but how can you escalate your tactics to kind of spark a little bit more in people um, before it's too late? And, 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 you know, let me give you a little backgrounder because a lot of my listeners, myself included, really want to see the power of labor. So I do get excited when I hear that they back you because I feel like um, we're looking for work stoppages. We're looking for something really massive that can't be ignored. Um, and I don't know, you know, if we've hit the critical mass in terms of public awareness and anger, um, you know, that's. That's maybe for a pollster to figure out. I don't really know. But I think like a lot of us are very frustrated and we want to know what those escalating tactics can be. Um, because, yeah, we went four years and we weren't really very successful in stopping any one of his initiatives except maybe expanding the green belt. And he's back at doing that now anyway. So what, you know, what can health coalitions, especially if you guys are working along so many other networks of social justice movements and with labor, you know, what, what's your vision? If you if you could call all the shots, Peter, where would we be this weekend? Would we be surrounding Queen's Park? Oh, my gosh. We might as well have a permanent encampment and occupy it. You know, a team convoy of trucks really do that very well. You know, so maybe we should be adopting some of those neat visual strategies. Just right? minus the hot tub. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, um, so... It isn't like we haven't traditionally done that either, frankly. Like, how many times have uh, we've all marched on to Queen's Park in Ontario and various other provincial capitals uh, to demand, uh, you know, what's just and fair? Um, but it is, uh, with the labor movement, they are one of the prime um, partners within the health coalition. So, uh, you know, they sit on the Ontario Health Coalition's board, so they have a decision-making role there, uh, as well as on the federal Canadian Health Coalition board. Um, our dilemma, it isn't like they don't uh, agree with our vision or anything, it's just organized labor itself is so divided. And this is you know, a, a politics of labor that we are not involved with. So we can't like dictate to them how things need to go. They are often the most organized element in uh, the left part of progressive society. So that's why they're so important to all of us. Uh, we pushed for over 15 years for a very uh, 
strong united front stand such as days of action in ontario against mike harris and uh you know which would have been a general strike that's constantly the word around is that why haven't we done a general strike that usually brings all kinds of governments regardless how autocratic to their knees uh but i'm not getting the sense of that unity and that is a little disheartening uh they agree with everything but there's personalities involved and i mean this show isn't about picking on uh why can't organized labor get organized it's just uh we're doing our utmost to provide the information they may provide the backing and the manpower in whatever instances they can but meanwhile we're going to do the visual things we're going to have the demonstration specific to healthcare and uh you know a massive workforce that is in the public sector is behind this too perhaps those unions will then decide that they'll do this without the blessing of the overall body all this is going on behind the scenes but to this point unfortunately there's not been some trigger that's caused them to say we've had enough and we're going to shut the province down that's so frustrating because like i'm sitting here trying to imagine that you know when you say trigger i'm like okay so what could it be could it be you know kids <laughs> dying from a, a preventable infection is it nurses leaving the profession on mass is it er's closing across the province like what then tens of thousands of deaths in profit making homes what then shifting billions of dollars of public money to private investors like what the hell does this country need to do to finally say enough is enough because it's already a sector you know sometimes off often like something absolutely horrid has to happen right and it usually involves death right but this is a sector that you know i guess deals with death every day have we become immune to the idea that people are expendable like is that where you know because covid kind of gave that feel right where we were clearly you know other cuts you know a little more nuanced right when you cut legal aid people could die but you have to do that little dance around to explain it. But like here, we literally saw dollars cut and people died, like as a direct result. And still nothing. So, I mean, a group of folks about a year ago, we, we started the Ontario Coalition Against Ford. Really impromptu. It was a, a knee-jerk reaction, really, to Ford's lack of measures. But when he went to the attorney general to start charging people for being out and about, you know, when, when he was still sending people to work and, and, and yada, yada. And we got many, many people to sign this open letter. And it was a letter to the leaders of the Ontario NDP and to the OFL begging them to start to work together to initiate some sort of work stoppage. And it was sent to every single MPP. It was sent to the leader by everyone who signed it, as well as, you know, riding associations, uh, three locals signed on to it and tried to bring it forth to the larger parent union. And literally, like, no one responded to this letter. 
nobody. Even within the NDP, we're talking about 800 NDP, Ontario NDP members, 12 full riding associations out of the 122, and not one MPP or, or anyone from that party even said, thank you for trying. This is why we can't do that. It was just flat out ignored. So to hear from you who have kind of the opposite perspective, like you're working with labor and all the kind of coalitions around the healthcare sector, and you're hearing the same thing, you know, this real hesitancy to towards anything that might be seen as militant or disruptive. This is blueprints for disruption. So you can clearly see I have a slant on tactics that we should be using. But Peter, that is so incredibly, you know, I hope that things can change, but you know, it, it is a critique that is valid uh, amongst organized labor right now. And I think the left has to be open to making that critique, even though we have to spend our time defending the right to unions and the benefits of unions. We, we still can't criticize their leaders um, when we feel like they're not doing enough. And, you know, when it comes to all the rights that we have in Canada, like, we don't have a lot of economic rights at all. Public health care is really one of the only ones in public. We have a right to public health care and, and education. And that's being whittled away financially, you know. And it's, uh, I, I, you know, the little brief history on Medicare is that initially it was supposed to be a 50-50 split. So, you know, this is why we have this jurisdictional buck passing that we see always being played out. And, uh, you know... It never, ever achieved a 50-50 split between the provinces and the federal government. And under Trudeau Sr., we came up with the Canada Health Act, but uh, part of that act also limited how much money the uh, federal government would fund provincial coppers, simply that you know they didn't want to see a bottomless pit. But they weren't thinking in terms of the strings that we already have attached in the law to ensure that it's not spent on private profit. And uh, this gets to the whole issues around, well, why aren't we enforcing what we already have? We have a Canada Health Act that literally, if the Trudeau the second government ever wanted to enforce it, they just stopped transferring money to the provinces or sending money off to private health. And it's a very, very potent, very strong thing. But what do we hear? The provincial premiers just saying, we want more non-strings attached money. We want the money. No question. All of us are advocating for more money from the feds. They should be paying more. But we do want that also to be strictly for a universal public health care system. None of this giving it away to for profits. And there's a similar argument that is made to for securing abortion rights. You know, there, it, there can be strings attached to the transfers that provinces have for our health care. But like what a political nightmare that would be, you know, to stop those transfers. And we can liken that to um, unions calling for strikes. So if our nurses, if ONA called for uh, the Ontario Nursing Association, uh, called for a strike, you know, they would be blamed for the disruption in healthcare, not Ford, who who has disrupted our healthcare as it is, and then pushed them 
to, you know, if you stop listening to people, if you stop taking meetings, you continue to legislate against them, you can expect them to start seeking other avenues, right? Untraditional avenues, but it is a political nightmare um, because, as we know, politicians typically have one job, and that is to be reelected. Um, that's the only thing that ends up mattering in in their in their record at the end of the day, right? Is how long they held office for. So that is that is a huge barrier. So you know, I guess public outreach becomes really important. Um, you you need folks, you need average Ontarians to start taking this as part of their responsibility as well, right? Not just the unions and not just your volunteers for the the health coalitions, but every single one of us, right? So what? Let's try to end on a bit of a hopeful note, Peter, because, you know, it, it is yeah. a dire situation. Know, we discuss this all the time. Uh, you know, it's always uh, doom scrolling when you're dealing with headlines on our democracy and our long term care and our public health facilities. Um, but you're absolutely right. I haven't done this for over 20 years just because I'm uh, depressed and see no hope. Clearly, I'm an optimist. So. the Optimism I will share is that we are growing as an organization despite the barriers. So there is an outreach happening. I'm on a show that I wouldn't have been, ever been on, not more than a year ago, probably. And yet your show is going to go to far more ears than I could ever reach in London, Ontario. I know that once people and that's the vast majority of us grasp the dire situation, many are moved to act. Absolutely. I, I've gained so many more members in London just because of the last election cycle in Ontario that uh, it took 10 years prior to get. And that was in one election cycle because the news is getting out. Uh, we cannot you know, predict the exigencies of an electoral system that 57% don't show up like that. You know, we can't overcome that. That That is not the fault of anyone who is out there fighting for the social justice in this province. Uh, it is literally a, a failing system that, you know, for whatever reasons, people have lost the uh, actual belief that the institutions we have are working so maybe on mass it just worked out that what's the point we're going to deliver what's the point someone's going to do it good lord we have seen what the right can do from the most extreme fringes libertarianism has literally captured north american conservatives that is such an extreme minority group, which now seems to hold so much political sway. I don't see why the heck not we can't do it too. We have means, we may not have the money, but we certainly have the people. And as we keep connecting with one another, sharing the word, Tommy Douglas did this in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And they didn't have the kind of broadcasting capacity you and I have today. I can broadcast from my own phone to tell the world what I think. Well, they listen, probably not, but they just might. 
and the odd one does, and then they get on board, and then they say, I want to help this way, I want to help that way. And I'm telling you, if Mr. Ford and his ideological bullies think that he's going to ram through unwanted highways, unwanted super mirrors, he is going to have the biggest fight ever. Because thankfully, we now don't have mandates that prohibit us from being gathering together. And it just might bring a few other people around to what's going on around us. We're not feeling any better off than we did before COVID. In fact, we feel worse. And there's no end in sight, except those people over there are saying there is a better way. What's their idea? And so on and so forth. And we're going to pull this off. We never gave up 60 years ago, and we're not going to give up now. I I applaud your optimism, Peter. I think that's a, a great note to kind of end our discussion on that one, you know, we do have to take ownership of it, but you know, we are you are building uh, the folks that are fighting back, they are building. And clearly, as you can hear, they are determined. So and also, what a great point to harken back to just how impossible public health care likely seemed when it first needed to be fought for. So even though the fight right now may seem very bleak, um, it has seemed bleak before and we've persevered. So thank you so much for your time, Peter. Uh, thank you for the work that the health coalitions are doing as well, like keeping getting the word out. We will be sure to share many links in the show notes today. Uh, not just from Peter's Health Coalition that uh, he's a part of, but from a few across Canada. And we hope that you can kind of get in contact with them, see the work that they're doing, and also help amplify that. So once again, thank you so much for joining us, Peter. I love the the kind of class analysis we were able to add to this discussion. That's very important to our audience uh, and to myself. Um, much appreciated. I can only thank you so much, Jessa, and all the fine work that uh, New Left Radio is uh, embarked upon. And I know your listeners are, you know, truly supportive of the work that we do and all the other social justice advocates out there. So uh, I'm so honored to have been on the show and uh, maybe we'll have another chat another day. Oh, I think so. So if the urgency had not hit you before, it should now. We must push back without delay to protect public health care here in Canada. We must demand increased funding, demand better choices be made by our elected officials. Because right now, they've got the money to spend on war and oil and gas subsidies on pipelines and police. One needs to only look at the tiny besieged island nation of Cuba and their world-class health care to understand it's all about deliberate choices at all levels and all stripes of Canadian politics. This fight against neoliberalism and the deadly austerity it brings with it will not happen at the ballot, though. And now you know these health coalitions aren't obscure organizations solely for healthcare professionals. They're everywhere, and they're made up of folks like you and I. And they need support. Most importantly, they need their supporters to be bold. Like in all things that we do, there's a team behind Blueprints of Disruption. I want to give a big thank you to our producers, Santiago, Hello Quintero, and Jay Woodruff.
Our show is also made possible by the support of our listeners. So if you appreciate our content and would like to become a patron, please visit us at www.patreon.com. So if you know of any work that should be amplified or want to provide feedback of our show, please reach out to us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. Blueprints of Disruption is a project of New Left Media, an independent employee-owned company.